Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 50. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin It would be better for him if a great millstone was hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, Tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Right, well, with the message today, the, the, the message is simple, uh, but the scripture is actually pretty complex. And a question that comes to mind for me immediately today is, who is us? It was the Apostle John, of all people, I mean, this is a disciple who later on had so much to teach us about love, and it's this very same John who at this point feels that he's going to earn some brownie points with Jesus when he says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we stopped him because he was not following us. So that leads us into the topic of today, who is us? And why did John feel that that if that bloke was going to be doing something in the name of Jesus, then that bloke should be following us? Or maybe his point was that he should be one of us. Or maybe his point was, it should just be us and nobody else should dare step onto our turf because this is what we do. We do stuff in the name of Jesus. Who does this bloke think that he is? And John comes out of all of this looking pretty bad, really. Um, John's vision of the kingdom of God was so limited. And Jesus' answer was, don't stop him. Now, Way back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus gave us a series of parables, agricultural parables, um, talking about the kingdom of God and how it would grow. We had the parable of the sower. 
where the word of God gets sown out into the world. Some receive that word and, and rejoice at receiving it. Um, some reject that word. Um, then some keep on going on in the word and are fruitful for God, but others fall away. And then we had the parable of the seed growing. It begins by sprouting under the ground and we don't even see it happening, but it grows. It's something that God is doing, but it's all a bit of a mystery to us. And then the third parable was the parable of the mustard seed. What begins out as this tiny, tiny little seed grows and becomes the biggest plant in the garden, branching out and spreading out so big that the birds could even nest in it. And that is all a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. It starts out small, but it grows. And that is what's happening here in chapter 9. The kingdom of God, up until now, we've been getting a picture of Jesus with, with primarily his inner circle, the 12 apostles. But now we get a picture of the kingdom that is growing. Here is this man casting out demons in the name of Jesus and doing amazing works in the name of Jesus. In essence, he's being fruitful for Jesus. But the disciples failed to recognise this. They failed to recognise the activity of God in this, through this man, and so they tried to shut him down. And so what was happening here is the disciples were doing to this man pretty much exactly what the religious leaders had been doing to Jesus. They failed to recognise the activity of God in Jesus, and so they tried to shut him down. And now we're seeing the disciples failing to see the activity of Jesus in this other man, and trying to shut him down. So, who is us? Well, for today, we're going to define us as the Christian church. Now, this wasn't an image that the disciples had for themselves at that stage, but we have the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the church, and then the members of the church are the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus. Right? The church is not an institution. It's not any one particular denomination. It's certainly not a state-sanctioned body for the worship of God, although the church can be found in all of those places. The church is the Lord Jesus Christ as our head and his disciples. Now, the thing is, the Apostle John and presumably the other apostles whom he spoke on behalf of felt that because this man wasn't following them, because he wasn't part of their own little inner circle, then he's not part of Jesus' church. They saw him as being on the outside. Now, let me tell you, as a leader of a church, I get this. Um, I get this, that because this man wasn't following them, they assumed that he wasn't part of Jesus' church. Now, I'm very aware that this is a trap that, that especially pastors and leaders of churches can fall into. We get all zealous for God, and that's a good thing, being zealous for God, um, but sometimes our zeal is misdirected zeal. And it's a temptation that I personally have to guard against. And it's a temptation to see the church 
or the only proper church in, in this particular location or the only faithful church or the only obedient church, we start seeing it as, as our own little patch. And, and we start having the attitude that everybody else is on a bit of the wrong track. The twisted logic goes like this. We can be so sure that our church is following Jesus. We can be, be so sure that this is how Jesus is leading us. And we can see the activity of God at work within the fellowship. And we see people growing. We see people um, growing spiritually. We can see people growing in numbers. At, not today. <laughs> but we see this stuff happening and we, not, we get so convinced, yeah, the Lord is blessing what we're doing. And so we come to the assumption that therefore, whoever wants to be following Jesus needs to be following Jesus with us. Because this is where God is at work. It's twisted, isn't it? But it's a very easy trap to fall into. I've been there. Maybe you may have as well. So you understand this is a confession. I'm, I'm not saying this is a good thing. So what does Jesus have to say about us? Who is us? Who is Jesus' church? Well, as we read through today's reading, it's really important that we take in everything that Jesus has to say about this. If we were to only take in verses 39 to 41, we would come out of this with a very wide view of what the Christian church is. It would be almost bordering on universalism. You could almost come away with the impression that anybody who doesn't hate Jesus so much that they actually want to be the ones driving the nails in, well, they, they, they get to go to glory. They, they're part of his church. Um, likewise, if we were only to take verses 42 to 50 and put that together with a few other like verses from other books of the Bible, we would come to a very narrow view of what the church is and we'd probably come to the view that hey we're the only godly church in town but of course the church down the road if they use the same view would come to the same conclusion they're the only godly church in town and those bush disciples oh they're all going to hell so it's really important that we actually hold together everything that Jesus has to say about this and this is where it begins the church is much bigger than those disciples ever imagined. And it's much bigger probably than what we ever imagined. Now, before we get into this too far, uh, I need to explain something. And we're going to be covering this more in depth next week, um, but it also creeps into this passage a little bit. Um, this whole passage is a section where Jesus uses a fair bit of hyperbole. Now, there's a word we don't use every day. What's hyperbole, I hear some of you ask? Hyper what? Rubbish. No, it's not rubbish. Hyperbole is an over-the-top statement that's given to make a point. It's not usually used to, to, to be taken literally. Right? So, for instance, we might say... That bag weighs a ton. Well, that port, it might be very heavy, but it doesn't weigh a ton, or else you wouldn't be able to lift it. Um, or we might say, yesterday was the worst day ever. Well, yesterday might have been a bad day. P 
but it certainly was not the worst day ever. Or you might say, so-and-so's as skinny as a rake. Well, they might be very thin and very trim, but no, my rake is a lot skinnier than what they are. Or you might say, I cannot live without him. Well, you may miss him very much, but it's not true that you can't live without him. Um, you're not going to die because he goes away for a few days. All right, so that's, that's just a few examples of hyperbole. But when Jesus uses hyperbole, it's generally a little bit different. Yes, it is an over-the-top statement given to make a point. And no, it's not usually meant to be taken literally. But in addition to this, when Jesus uses hyperbole, in all of the examples I can think of, somebody might come up to me afterwards and, and say, well, here's one, what about that one? But okay, please do tell me because I want to know. But in every example that I can think of where Jesus uses hyperbole, it is actually true. When you drill down and take the statement for what he actually says, it is actually true. Right, so let me give you an example. And this is um, part of the reading that we're going to cover next week, but I'm going to use it as the example for today because it helps us to get the point. So next week, we're going to be looking at where Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Right? That is hyperbole. It's a shocking statement. It's an over-the-top statement. It's not meant to be taken literally. But you know what? It is actually true. If my hand is the thing that causes me to sin, and by sinning, I'm going to go to hell, yes, I would be far better off right now to get in my car, drive to the shed, plug in the meat saw and get slice it off and throw it to the dog. A bit much, Robin? A bit much. We're not going to throw it to the dog. We're just going to throw it in the bin. Is that not so bad? Not so bad. I would be better off to live a few decades, hear my assumption here, live a few decades more, um, as a cripple than to keep both my hands and go to hell for all eternity. It is actually true. But here's the thing. I reckon I would very quickly learn to be epi epidextrous. Is that the word? When you can use both hands? Sorry? Ambidextrous. Ambidextrous. Become ambidextrous and learn to sin with my left hand. And then I'd have to cut it off as well. See, it's hyperbole. Jesus isn't telling me to cut off my hands. He's telling me to cut off whatever it is that causes me to sin. So, for example, um, this isn't a temptation of mine personally, but I've got my own temptations. But if my temptation is drunkenness, right? If I'm drinking alcohol, that's okay. Getting drunk is a sin, right? But if I had that temptation for getting drunk, and I couldn't go out with certain people without getting drunk, um, Jesus would say to me, okay, Michael, what is it that puts you in the place that you can't resist this sin? 
I said, well, it's when I go to the pub. And he said, right, you go to the pub never again. Or I might say, oh, it's when nobody else is around and I've got alcohol in the house and I just drink it. And Jesus would say, no alcohol in the house. Or I might say, it's, when, it's only when I hang out with certain people and they're just a bad influence on me and they just urge me on and I end up drinking more than I should. And Jesus would say, cut off those people. You don't associate with them anymore because it's causing you to fall into sin. Do you get the point? That's how hyperbole works. It's a broad statement. It's a sometimes shocking statement, but it makes a point. But it's not meant to be taken literally. But when Jesus says it, it is actually true. Okay. So here, Jesus gives us a picture of the church. And I believe that what Jesus is saying here is actually bordering on hyperbole. His point is, he's wanting to expand our vision of the church. And so he gives a very wide view of what the church is. He says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. All right? So one indication that someone belongs to Jesus is the ability to do mighty works in the name of Jesus. Now, you might think, well, that should be obvious. You know, if somebody's doing mighty works in the name of Jesus, it's, it's obvious they belong to Jesus. But others of you will know the scriptures well enough to say, but hang on, Michael, what about Matthew chapter 7? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says pretty much the opposite. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All right, so, so here in, in Mark, Jesus is saying, if somebody does mighty works in my name, they are unlikely to be against me. But in Matthew chapter 7, he's saying, many who do mighty works in my name, I don't even know. And he calls them workers of lawlessness. How do we make sense of this? It's like they're almost saying the opposites of each other. I'll tell you how we make sense of it. When it comes to other disciples of Jesus, who is their judge? God is their judge, not us. In Romans chapter 14, Paul says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. You see, when it comes to other disciples of Jesus, our default position should not be one of suspicion and rejection. We shouldn't expect that they have to prove themselves to us before we receive them as a brother or sister in Christ. It's you know, like sometimes when we come up against other Christians, it's sort of like, we're going to treat them as guilty until they prove themselves innocent. 
whereas it should be the other way around. In the absence of, of evidence to the contrary, if somebody is doing mighty works in the name of Jesus, our default position should be, yay, isn't God good? And welcome, brother. But of course, if evidence turns up to the contrary, then, then we have to revise that position. But we should never begin from a place of suspicion and rejection. If they claim to be Christian, assume that they are. Assume that they are a brother or a sister in Christ, unless we have evidence to the contrary. The second thing Jesus says is for the one who is not against us is for us. And then he says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, once again, I think we've got some hyperbole happening here. These are over-the-top statements that are not meant to be taken literally, but if we analyse them deeply enough, they are actually true. Right? So what's the thing that Jesus is trying to get across here? Our default position, unless we've got good reason to doubt it, is to assume that those who appear to be for Jesus... And if they support Jesus, and if they support the disciples of Jesus for the simple reason that they are disciples of Jesus, assume that they themselves are disciples of Jesus. Until we see evidence to the contrary, see them as a brother or sister in Christ. Even if they go to the church down the road, okay? But I wonder if you can see what else Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you be the one who gives the cup of water. Now, Jesus has a way of turning things around. Like when that man asked Jesus, who's my neighbour? Jesus could have given him an answer, but he didn't. Instead, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, which taught him how to be a neighbour. He wanted to know who is my neighbour. Instead, Jesus taught him how to be a neighbour. I think that's what Jesus is doing here as well. I think he's saying, when he says that the one who gives the cup of water, that they're not going to, to you, they're not going to lose their reward. I think he's actually saying, or expecting us to get, hey, I should be the one giving the cup of water. I should be the one who is hospitable to those who are following Christ. And I won't lose my reward because of it. But I do have to urge some caution here. If we don't recognise the ramifications of what Jesus is fully saying, we could come to the conclusion that anyone who's polite to Christians will themselves be considered a Christian. Uh, and that's not the case. Or we could come to the conclusion that anyone who's not nasty to Christians gets a ticket to glory that's not the case either some people would even tend toward universalism um, do you know what universalism is universalism is where you believe all gods lead to the to the one god there is only one god um, it's a very wrong belief um, but some people who would tend toward universalism would conclude that a muslim who's nice to christians is saved 
Or they would conclude that a Hindu who's nice to Christians is saved. Or they would conclude that an atheist who's nice to Christians is saved. Not so. You see, all of these statements that Jesus said, these wide, broad statements, actually have boundaries built within them. Boundary number one is the the one who does a mighty work in the name of Jesus can't later on speak evil of Jesus. Now, to do something in the name of Jesus isn't a matter of just tacking on those words. You know, like sometimes we pray, you know, Jesus said, pray in the name of Jesus. Sorry, we're told to pray in the name of Jesus. So we just tell Jesus all the things we want and we finish up our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, now, I, I do that, but that's not praying in the name of Jesus. Praying in the name of Jesus is praying in, in the mind of Jesus. It's following Jesus, right? So doing things in the name of Jesus isn't just tacking on, isn't just doing something, oh, I've done this in the name of Jesus, by the way. Doing something in the name of Jesus means that I'm doing it in obedience to him. I'm following him. He's leading me. I'm being obedient to him. This is in Jesus' name. So it means we have to be following Jesus and working with him. And if somebody later on speaks evil of Jesus, well, they obviously haven't been working in the name of Jesus. Boundary number two. Jesus said the one who is not against us is for us. Now, by the world's standards in our culture, it seems that the greatest virtue, perhaps the only virtue that seems to be valued in our culture at the moment, is something called tolerance. And looking at this passage through the eyes of our culture, um, we might start thinking, okay, if you tolerate Christians, you're in. The problem is, nowhere in the scriptures is tolerance seen as a virtue. Nowhere. You see, here in Mark, Jesus said... The one who against us, sorry, who is not against us is for us. But in Matthew, Jesus gives us the flip side of this. He said, whoever is not with me is against me. Right? So, so one of those seems to include and the other seems to exclude. And then, of course, as we read the letters written by the apostles in the, into the early church, this is all spelled out pretty clearly that um, we've got a dividing line between light and darkness, goodness and evil. It, you're either on the side of Christ or you're against him. If Jesus isn't your Lord, then you're, you're an enemy of Christ. And so when Jesus said, the one who is not against us is for us, who is against Jesus? And remember also, us is not just Jesus, it's the church. Who is against Jesus? Who is against the church? Well, it's anyone who's not a disciple of Jesus. Our world doesn't like black and whites, but it is black and white. There's no shade of grey here. We are either for Jesus or we are against him. And so if I reject Jesus and don't want to be following Jesus, then I'm against Jesus. 
Boundary number three. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, the boundary there are those words, because you belong to Christ. This isn't a picture of hospitality because you're a hospitable person. It's not a picture of generosity because you're a generous person. It's not a picture of being nice to someone simply because it's a humane thing to do. This is one person showing hospitality, giving a drink of water to another person for one simple reason. It is showing hospitality because the recipient, the one they're giving the drink to, belongs to Christ. Now, to us, and in our society, when people think of the word Christ, we think of Jesus' second name, right? Jesus Christ, that's just Jesus' name. No, it's not just Jesus' name. This, is, this gospel is written to, the, to a Jewish culture. And they knew very well what the Christ is, who the Christ is. He is God's chosen one. And for them to acknowledge that Jesus is Christ is a personal step of faith. Okay, so this is not a big, wide picture of universalism where nice people get from all sorts of religions or from no religion at all get to go to glory. This is not at all what this is a picture of. It's a picture of those who express faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in word and action. And I believe the point Jesus is making is we are sometimes way too quick to make a judgment against someone and decide that they're not one of us, decide that they're not part of the church. We judge them too quickly. Our default position should be that when a person expresses faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in word and action, we should recognise them as a brother or sister in Christ. Unless, of course, we see evidence against their sincerity. Right? You following me? Keeping up? So can you hear what Jesus is saying here? John is concerned that this man driving out the demons isn't following us. Whereas Jesus' answer is saying, he is us. Forget about him not following us. He is us. We are the church. He is the church. He is us. Let's make this really personal as we, we, we pull it in and make it local for us. Um, for those who are listening to the video, you'll have to think about the own church, church, other churches in your own area. But for us here in St George, who is us? Who is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this little town? If we went alphabetically, we could go, is, is it the Anglicans? Is it the AOG? Is it the COC? Is it the Lutherans? Is it the Presbyterians? Is it the Roman Catholic Church? Is it the Uniting Church? Or is it this little church of Bush disciples? Who is us? Well, unless there's evidence to the contrary, 
our default position should be that when a person or when a fellowship expresses faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in word and action, there is the church. We're not alone here. Now, we covered a few boundaries to this. But then Jesus goes on to include another boundary. And this boundary, and this is the reason I wanted to pull some of next week's message into, into this week, because this next boundary is to do with the seriousness of sin. People of the world don't want to be reminded of the seriousness of sin, do they? In the news at the moment, even those who are not rugby union fans have probably become familiar with the name Israel Falau. Uh, in his personal social media, he said that all drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters will go to hell unless they repent and turn to Jesus. So that was something he sort of reposted. And then his own personal words, which were basically given the position from Scripture, was those that are living in sin will end up in hell unless you repent. Jesus Christ loves you and is giving you time to turn away from your sin and come to him. Now, how do you think the world responded to that? His hearing began yesterday they couldn't decide. It continues today. And then they're going to mull on it a few more days before they give Australia the answer. But Rugby Australia, even before the hearing, said that these views are not acceptable. Can you get this? Um, it was even said by people in authority that he's not a good role model for children. We can't have him playing rugby. Qantas has threatened to pull sponsorship in the past and this time they've said we're watching very carefully to see what Rugby Australia do. And Rugby Australia made it really clear that even if the tribunal decides that he didn't do anything wrong, they won't have a bloke like that playing rugby for Australia. Can you believe it? If you quote scripture and if you believe scripture According to the world, you're not a good role model for our children. The reason is because scripture highlights the seriousness of sin and it highlights the consequences of sin. And people of the world don't want to be reminded of this. And that's what Jesus does here. Jesus highlights the seriousness of sin. And he uses hyperbole to do it. We've already talked about that a bit, but we're going to talk about that more next week. But the bit that I want to look at today is from the beginning of verse 42, where Jesus sets a fourth boundary for those who claim to be his. And it's a very serious boundary indeed. And it's a boundary that, as a Bible teacher, it makes me shudder. Um, it is something that I must never take lightly. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That makes me shudder. Um, what kind of teaching is presented, either by a church or within a church, is serious, serious business. If by what I teach, I cause someone else to fall into sin, I would be better off if I was drowned. Do you understand this? That there are eternal consequences for those who lead Jesus's children into sin. I find that very sobering, as I should. And this is a very clear boundary for when we consider who is and who is not a brother or a sister in Christ. See, it, it becomes about what we believe, what we teach, and how we act. This is one of the clearest boundaries that limits what fellowships and it limits what denominations can legitimately claim to be the body of Christ. When a church begins to redefine sin, or when it begins to accept sin, when its teaching causes others to embrace sin or to fall into sin, that is a boundary that should never be crossed. Now, most of you here today know my story. I used to be a minister in a certain denomination, but over a number of years, that denomination ceased to be concerned about the seriousness of sin. They've even now gone to the extent of coming to the position that marriage doesn't have to be between a man and a woman. Their, their doctrine now says that a man can marry a man or a woman can marry a woman. And they proclaim this is God's intent for marriage. And people who have been struggling with that particular temptation and with God's strength resisting it are now being told, you don't have to struggle with this. This is the way God has made you. It's not a sin. Um, you should celebrate the way God has made you. And at the advice of the church's doctrine, Jesus' little ones are being led into sin. And I know a number of folk who, for many years, have battled against that sin, knowing that, that they must not fall into sin. But since then, um, with teaching from others saying, it's actually okay, they've now fallen into a life of sin and fully committed to it. But that's just one example. I use that example because it's an obvious example it's a personal example. And even ministers who I know within that church have come to the belief that while they themselves are staying faithful to God, they've taken the position that that denomination has stepped out of the one holy apostolic church. But that's just one example. We could use heaps of examples. For instance, if, if a church is preaching prosperity theology, and people start using that and, and they fall into greed through teaching 
They've been led into sin. This is serious stuff. But it's not only serious stuff for a denomination. It's serious stuff for us personally. And as we live as disciples of Jesus, acceptance of Christ and the lordship of Christ means that we also reject sin. Now we're going to leave that there for today because next week we're going to be talking about a transformed life of a Christian as we leave sin behind and as we follow the path of righteousness that Christ leads us on. But for today, I want to encourage you, be fast to recognise a disciple of Jesus as a brother or a sister in Christ. Unless there's evidence to the contrary, our default position should be when a person expresses faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in word and action, and when we see the fruit of their righteousness, of, of the righteousness of Jesus in their life, there is the church. There is the church. But don't be blind. Jesus does set some very clear boundaries for what is and what is not the church. Of first importance for us is to believe the truth, to teach the truth, to preach the truth, and to live out the truth. But the key message that Jesus is strongly getting across to us today is about the importance of fellowshipping with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I hear so many people say so often, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Usually what they're saying is, I don't, I don't want to have to mix with other Christians. You know? But this is Jesus' whole intent. The church should be paramount in our minds. This is really important for Jesus and for us. Jesus' church is so much bigger than we envisage. Let's pray. Lord, I personally confess that the too many times I've been too quick to judge others. I've been too quick to be suspicious, too quick to be distant, too quick to be self-righteous and not so sure of others. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that desire fellowship in the name of Jesus. Fellowship beyond our own little gathering. That you would recognize, sorry, that we would recognize your disciples and that we would embrace them as our spiritual family. Lord, when we hear of mighty works being done in your name, may our initial reaction be one of praise rather than condemnation. May it be one of encouragement rather than opposition. Lord, may we never be found to be working against your Holy Spirit. But Lord, we also pray that you would give us discernment, that we would not be led astray, and that you would open our eyes to those who are workers of lawlessness. And Lord, help us to be a fellowship who love, who love you, who love our brother and sister in Christ, who love the world and want to see them saved and who delight in fellowship.
And Lord, may we never cease to be one of your little ones. And may we never cause one of your little ones to sin. Help us to walk in your path of righteousness and to lead others in your path of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.